Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Pung, and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Hi, Dr. Anthony Llewellyn. Welcome to the CCAM podcast. Hello, Elise. Good to be with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I actually met you many years ago when you were working as a DPET and you were my DPET during my psychiatry term. At that point, I had in my mind that you were doing a fair few things on the side and that you'd done some interesting different jobs before that role as well. But it wasn't until I actually started looking into you for this podcast that I realized how many different things you've done. Can you describe for us the current roles that you're doing? Sure. I do a bunch of things, really. I still do a little bit of psychiatry. I work a couple of short days privately doing some inpatient work in the the local private hospitals, which keeps me in touch with mental health. And then the rest of the time, apart from juggling a couple of young kids, the rest of the time I'm doing a lot of stuff with other doctors. So I coach other doctors. I also help them with things like their CVs and other sorts of documents for colleges and things like that. And on top of that, I consult with organisations, mainly medically related. So I've worked with a few colleges over the years, recently the College of Radiology and before that the College of Physicians looking at their selection processes and things like that. I've done some work for the Ministry of Health in New South Wales here. I do a bunch of training. I work for various health services, and medical schools, again, mainly around focusing on medical careers, that sort of thing. I get invited to speak a lot and <laughs> participate in podcasts. And my most recent addition to my portfolio is I've recently taken up a board role as the chair of the accreditation committee for South Australia Medical Education Training. So that's for those who don't know, South Australia is the kind of the heady equivalent in New South Wales. It's the council that predominantly looks after pre-vocational medical education and training in South Australia. That's amazing. That's definitely a creative career. <laughs> Thank I'm you. Intrigued <laughs> to find out how you got there. What actually drew you to med school in the first place? I think I was fairly typical of high school students of my era in that I was smart enough to get into medical school. And I don't think I knew that doctors helped people and had a lot of admiration in society. And I I looked up to my own general practitioner and that sort of thing. But I don't think I had really thought too much about it other than it was the hardest thing to get into in the University of Tasmania and I put my mind to it. There were a few other things I thought about, but I had a little bit of a plan, I think, from memory. I'm just a bit hazy here, but I think I was already interested in psychological stuff. So psychiatry was on the cards when I got into medical school. I think, if not, it was it came about fairly early on in my medical school career. So that's my story. That's pretty impressive. I think very few med students start out thinking that they're going to do something can actually end up following through with that training. True, but pretty much before I finished that training, I was off to other things. So <laughs> looking back, maybe I should have gotten some sort of management training or something like that. But you don't you don't tend to do that as an undergraduate degree. You normally do a, a field first and then you go and do an MBA or something like that. So there was a bit of a plan there, yeah. <laughs> How did it actually come about that transition out of purely clinical roles? It probably, again, started in medical school, really. Um, I was a bit of a student politician. I actually took a year off between finishing medical school and starting my internship to be the student union president of 
my university, which is the first time a medical student had ever done that. So I think even then I was sort of interested in bigger picture stuff. And even through training, I was like the union rep and organizing my other colleagues. And from doing that, I kind of drew the attention of the managers in my service. And I guess some people might say sucked me over to the dark side, but they convinced me <laughs> to stop being an agitator and, and uh, be more of a someone who could solve the problems that we were agitating about. And I was happy to do that because I could see that there were some quick, easy, early wins that I could be involved in. So that would help my colleagues in any regard. So it wasn't a bad idea to do that. So probably halfway through my psychiatry training, I took on, there was like a vacant role for a medical administrator in a mental health service. And it had been left vacant because the previous incumbent had a bit of a bad reputation. So, so I think that kind of meant there was a bit of a reluctance to fill the position. But we were just so short in medical staff, both at a consultant level and um, at a training level. And so I convinced my um, area director to give me a go and let me have a go at some recruiting. And quite quickly, we recruited some more doctors and that made everyone happy. So uh, that's where it started. It sounds like you have been always naturally drawn towards those sort of roles. Mm. I'm interested by the fact that you took a year off, even if you were doing something somewhat related between med school and internship, because I do hear people say that they want to do that a lot or that they're just dying for that year off, but there's mm. a bit of fear and a bit of pressure to just get on and get started with your internship. Yeah, I've actually um, counseled and coached a few, uh, just advised a few medical students over the years who've been wanting to do that. When I took the year off, I was told that would be like, terrible for me that I'd forget all that stuff I'd learned and intern would be so much harder for me and it's just the worst thing to do and it, would, it was basically um, frowned upon but I ignored that advice <laughs> and actually it, it worked out perfectly okay. The bad thing for me, well, it didn't end up being bad but being a University of Tasmania student is a, usually a small cohort but the way it worked out for me was that in my year the graduating group had been depleted by people falling out of it in those days if you bailed something you repeat a year that sort of thing so there were a lot of people had fallen out of our year group into the the one behind so when i came to going for my internship there were basically too many graduates to fill the spots in tasmania so i ended up going to the mainland but again that wasn't a problem i ended up at canberra and i found that what i'd learned in that year off was actually probably more relevant to the role of an intern than all the stuff I'd learned in medical school. I learned how to solve logistics and negotiate and problem solve and people manage and all that sort of stuff. And that's often the job of the intern, all that sort of stuff, rather than necessarily being the person that knows the diagnosis and knows the tests to order and knows what to prescribe. So I kind of found there were other colleagues around me that are more skilled and knowledgeable in medicine who would give me a hand with the, the sort of few things that I needed a bit of a hand with. I remember I had a bit of a cannula crisis in my intern, first intern weeks where I just couldn't get it, but that was probably the only thing that I found probably was not so good as of taking a year off, but it was a great year. It was probably one of the best years of my life, really, and I think it set me up for medical training. Yeah, incredible. I think every intern has a cannula crisis, so I don't know if you would have really <laughs> saved yourself that one. Yeah, I, I remember carrying in the stairwell, in, if you know the Canberra Hospital, there's this one big tall building that goes up about nine floors. I think I was halfway up and all these pages going off cannulas and I was like, yeah, no, I can't do it. But I got there. So anyway, my message to medical students who want to take a year off between medical school and internship is do it. 
<laughs> it's not a catastrophe. It is possible. Don't be put off by people. I would say doing more than a year off is probably a bad idea. Like there's a reason you want to get your general registration. But if you're thinking you need some time off, then take some time off because the medical career takes up a fair bit of pace from there on in. And you might not get a chance to take time off for a few more years. Definitely. I think a lot of people find themselves in that position as well. I'm interested to see how you went from that role where you were working in medical admin in the mental health sphere. Where did that actually fall in your training and where did that lead you? Yeah, so it was sort of about halfway through my psychiatry training. So I think even before my exams, I might well have been doing some of that work. So it started off with just normal sort of stuff that even like senior registrars do interviewing people for jobs and rostering and things like that. But a colleague of mine, Dr. Martin Cohen and I, we were about the same stage of training. Martin was a year or two ahead of me. He finished and then he took on the director of training role. And so we sort of got together, myself as the administrator and him as the director of training. And we saw a lot of value in actually working together and collaboratively. And so we put together a bit of a strategic plan for our medical workforce to fix some of the problems that we're having in terms of retention just recruiting people into psychiatry and it was all a lot of it was just common sense stuff at the time we were like 200 interns and residents at john hunter or hunter new england and only two every term would do some psychiatry or something silly like that when it's you know 20 percent of the service and so we rapidly expanded all the intern and resident terms and even put together a consultation liaison term at the hospital and did some innovative stuff there so just to expose more people to it and that really helped in, you know, we got to a point where we were filling up all the training positions with local candidates mainly. So we weren't relying on people coming from elsewhere. Uh, Yeah, it just basically became very sustainable. And it was about supporting training and supporting the workforce and often uh, trainees sort of see medical admin in some way is opposed to the training or the director of trainings there to fight back against admin for them, all that sort of stuff. But we had a bit more of a collaborative approach and that sort of worked and we had other groups come and look at us we're doing the Illawarra copied us and so did um, a group in Adelaide and they had the same results and I guess from that once I did become a fellow of the college I did a bit of a split role for a bit where I was doing a bit of clinical and a bit of admin but then I went full-time into admin and then very soon after that I was asked to act as the director of medical workforce for my district so looking after all the workforce issues I did that I can't, can't remember how many times I was acting director of medical workforce but it was quite a few times and and a few other roles, and then um, that led to 2012 taking up the role as the Executive Medical Director. It was basically a medical workforce and education role for the whole state of New South Wales, looking after, you know, allocating almost a 1,000 internships a year, several training programs, trying to enact state strategic plans and things. So, yeah, you never know where you'll end up if you put your hand up for something, I guess, yeah. is, the, is the, the message behind that. That sounds like a huge job. Did those jobs come to you and you think, oh, yeah, I'll go for that? Or did you really seek out opportunities like that? Or was it a mixture? Bit of a mixture. I've definitely had managers who've been really strong mentors for me along the way and people I've had a lot of respect for and who've taught me a lot of stuff. And they would often nudge me in those sort of directions. I mean, the heady job, again, this is probably maybe would be a good story or lesson for your listeners the heady job I probably wouldn't have taken up had the situation for me where I was at the time not going south as much as it was. We had a bit of a heady got reorganised at the same time at the health district. 
shaken up a bit and there was a bit of a change in our local health district at the top. And as often happens when you have a change in leadership, there's often a bit of a change in culture and I felt what was happening wasn't fitting my sort of values and my views of ways health services should be run and I could see that it was staying in my role, it was going to be difficult and I was going to get in conflict with people. So I started looking and this role in Sydney came up. It was basically they were reorganized. Hedy was like, came out of a previous organization, but it was basically, it was almost like a startup when I joined it. I was I joined it about six months in and there were maybe 80 or so staff at the time and we're still trying to work out a lot of the rules and the processes. And It was interesting to see how much going from where I was as a fairly senior manager and executive and still not having a lot of authority or decision-making power or that sort of stuff going to a situation where I remember having to check in a few times with my chief executive Heather and say you're happy for me making this $300,000 decision I can go do that can I oh yeah that's you you've got (laughs) I'm not sure if it's $300,000 but I, I had a lot of autonomy and delegated responsibility and all of a sudden I could actually make decisions and even the people below me were allowed to make decisions a bit more liberally so yeah sometimes you think working in a certain health network or health service that this is the way everyone runs things but it's actually useful to sort of go somewhere else and see how things might be a bit different and there are different versions of bureaucracy so the lesson for me there was it was taught fairly on never worked for a manager that you couldn't respect and I was at that situation and I did got me into a really good role that I really enjoyed for four years and Again, learn a lot of stuff from it and set myself up for the kind of next phase of my career. So, you know, I know a lot of people join the CCIM Facebook group, particularly um, because, of, you know, they're feeling a bit burnt out. They're exploring other things. Again, I, I'd say to people, if you're in a position where you've tried really hard and you just can't see things improving, you can't see the culture moving, get out if you can. And the good thing about being a doctor is there's often lots of opportunities still around there for you. And Try something different. You just might surprise yourself. I think it's a bit of a foreign concept in the medical workforce because you're strapped into your coveted training position, so people don't see that option of getting out and changing. It's good to hear. Yeah, it. yeah, but you can get that sort of. Um, I always get this wrong. The sunk false prop fallacy, or the um, mm. the, the concept. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, sunk cost fallacy. I think it's called. Yes, that's right. You know, that I see that a lot with trainees and I saw that in the health service people were just banging their heads against something and they were hoping it was different and they'd invested so much time and effort in the outcome but really when they stepped back and looked at what the outcome was going to be it wasn't really what they wanted anyway yeah so I appreciate if you've invested a lot of time and effort and had to work really hard to get that training post you you don't want to give it up lightly or you can generally get a break in training and those sorts of things for a while. and It doesn't have to be a full commitment to getting out initially. But, yeah, again, I would encourage people to think, am I still doing this because I've actually just invested so much in it that I can't pull myself out of it? Or am I actually doing this because this is what I want to do for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it might be? And if the answer is it's just because you've put so much in it, then you're probably not in the right spot. Definitely. I think more people need to reflect on that early on. I'm interested in a few of the other things that you are doing, the things you're juggling, and how you got into both coaching and management consulting. When I first started going off the typical medical training pathway, 
I found a lot of suggestions to go into that management consulting field. And I, at that point, had absolutely no idea what the term meant. So I'm hoping you could define it for us and then talk a bit about how you got into it. Sure. Management consulting is a little bit like coaching, but for organization. One of the main reasons that individuals will seek out a coach is to help them to clarify some goals and to get help in achieving their ambitions, uh, realizing those goals, particularly by being held accountable by utilizing the coach. If an individual knew how to get from A to B, they'd do it, basically. But if an individual has been trying to get from A to B but been struggling, they will usually think about engaging a coach. So this, it's the same thing with organizations, except obviously organizations are full of humans, so they're incredibly even more complex than just one human. Um, so they often have problems that they're not quite sure about how to solve. And often it's also about, uh, you know, they kind of know where they need to be, but they're struggling to achieve that normally for a bunch of reasons. But one of them is often that there's internal resistance to change, maybe even external resistance to change. So that's where the, the management consultant comes in to sort of help them with clarifying the roadmap and how to get there, I guess. Now, there's often a few purists when it comes to both coaching and management consulting who say you don't really need any expertise in the individual's field in the case of coaching or the organization's field in the case of management consulting. You just need to be good at coaching or good at consulting and good at asking questions and putting information together and reframing or having some process methodology or something like that. But we've recently seen <laughs> some good evidence that this may not necessarily be the case with the downfall of PwC and the uh, and I think the other three of the big four are taking a fair bit of heat and probably somewhat rightly and fairly, in my opinion, because I, I do think expertise and experience does matter with both coaching and management consulting. A lot of people who come to me as a coach, they come because they know that I have some expertise in the area that they're looking at. Now, that makes a bit of a challenge for me because part of it's about trying to get them to rethink and do things themselves differently, but it also means they have a lot of trust, a lot more initial trust in me than perhaps if they went to a general career coach who didn't know anything about medicine, for example. That's management consulting. It's kind of like coaching for organizations. I imagine coaching is draws on your skills that you have learnt in psychiatry training and medical training in general a fair bit mm. as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of the theories of management and coaching come from previous eras of psychiatrists and psychologists. And so, you know, a lot of the strategies in coaching are partly borrowing things from the counseling, psychotherapy type fields. And there's a fair bit of overlap. And one needs to be careful with having a mental health clinical background that you don't get too much into sort of the diagnosing and pathologizing of people because that's not what they've come to coaching for. So I think you do have to have clear boundaries. As, you know, if it's a clinical thing, see you for clinical psychiatry. If it's a coaching thing, that's totally separate. But yeah, um, Keep your formulation to yourself. Yeah. I spend a bit of time pondering the themes that come up in coaching for certain clients and how they often seem to get themselves in the same <laughs> tricky predicaments and whatnot. So it's helpful to have that sort of human behaviour background active listening skills as a psychiatrist you often do a lot of questioning your patients you ask them lots of questions to, partly to find out about them but also to help them find out a bit about themselves so again that sort of socratic method is utilized in coaching so i think i mentioned earlier on that i've ended up in a sort of an executive management sort of 
world and I've come out of that from initially in high school being interested in psychology and social psychology and then doing psychiatry training, etc. kind of fits with my interest and passion about understanding human behaviour and what makes people tick and how to get people to work together and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I see it all as a natural evolution over time, I guess, for for me. And there's been quite a few psychiatrists being quite successful as leaders and managers over the years. I can definitely see how they all fit together in terms of skills and experience and interests. But how do you actually juggle all of that? Sometimes badly. (laughs) I've had phases in my life and my career where I don't like to be stuck doing the same thing over and over again. So I always seek out new opportunities. But then I get to phases where I need to consolidate and shrink things down a bit. Like inevitably, if you're doing part-time jobs, whatever industry, but this definitely happens in medicine, after a while you feel like, let's say you're doing two part-time jobs, after a while you get to a point where you feel like you're doing two full-time jobs half a week together and that can be a real challenge now that i work for myself i have a bit more control over that stuff so i can determine how much time of the day i spend on certain things but with all my roles i do a lot of planning and diarising so i make sure that things are blocked out in advance and that i've got if i'm feeling a bit under pressure i put some spare days in the diary to catch up and all that sort of stuff I employed a couple of, over two years ago now, initially employed a virtual assistant within Australia to help with a few of my tasks, but recently, about two and a half years ago, I employed, she works for me 25 hours a week, virtual assistant out of the Philippines, and that's probably one of the best decisions I made. So she looks after a lot of my client management stuff, so emails and messages and requests for refunds and rescheduling, all that sort of stuff that isn't really necessarily a great use of my time. And then I've hired another virtual assistant to help me with editing my videos for my content creation. Being a bit of a technologist, I also focus on making sure things are um, processes are as automated as possible. So using things like Zapier, but not Zapier whenever possible because Zapier is a bit fragile and a bit costly, but, but things that sort of in my websites and things that basically, you know, someone signs up for a, a strategy call with me, which is one of the things I regularly do with people. When they get to their checkout page, there's the form to tell me what they want to go over in the call. And then the next thing is the booking page where they can make their own booking. And then they get an email a day later just to remind them to do the booking and a couple more emails about getting prepared for the call. And that means I have to do far less hand-holding and I can concentrate on giving them a a dedicated good half an hour of my time when they check in with me and um, a variety of strategies. I think it's, you know, tip for your listeners is to often go through this with, with clients. We often end up with lists as ways of managing our tasks. But the problem with lists is they tend to just keep being repopulated and things stuck at the bottom of them and then they go to page number two and page number three. And you start to get a little bit depressed and deflated over them. So if you're one of those people, maybe take out your list and run through it and have a think about what's on that list. How much of that's actually important for you to look after versus maybe somebody else could do it for you and that sort of thing. And how much of it's urgent versus non-urgent? Are you actually allocating yourself enough time for those non-urgent but important tasks or those little non-urgent but important things creeping in? There's a thing that I won't... (laughs) (laughs) trying to describe because you need a picture for it but it's called the eisenhower grid of planning and i often go through this with clients and it's a it's just a two by two grid that helps you to sort of organize your uh, your tasks and 
uh, also realize tasks that perhaps you don't need to be doing or could be passing on to other people to do to help you focus on what's important for you. So some of the things I do suggest with my clients, I do actually use myself. So <laughs> the range of strategies, I think, is the, yeah, the answer to that question. Those are some great tips. I'll definitely use some of them myself. <laughs> it feels like you've used some of Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week ideas but haven't quite got yourself down to the four-hour work week. Yeah, I'm not sure that there is a four-hour work week. It's a great headline for a book, but there's a saying that, you know, you want to try and be working on the business, not not in the business. I, I don't believe that four hours working on the business is going to keep a good business going. There, there are people always out there that are probably going to spend more time and get ahead of you and cut your <laughs> undercut you. But I think it is possible to, I mean, where I am in terms of being in a nice place is that now I can... You know, I'm a bit of a workaholic, but I can now work the sort of hours that fits around my social and family needs. So I, you know, I can now take my kids to school twice a week and pick them up from school twice a week and take them to sports and practice and things. And then, you know, they're in bed and I do a coaching session late in the evening because I'm a bit of a night owl. So that's another, I think, benefit of what I do. Probably, I mean, maybe in the future, a lot of the sort of clinical specialties will be a little bit more like we're already seeing evidence of it with telehealth, people choosing to sort of work different hours, etc. that suit them. But four-hour work week, don't quite buy it. (laughs) On a bit of a different note, we ask this to everyone that's on the show. If you were going to go pursue a career in something that's not medicine, that's not coaching, that's not these management executive roles Mm. or management consulting something completely different, what would you do? Early on in my life, I did fancy being a lawyer and I'd probably make a fairly good one because I'm, I'm interested in the law, fairly good at writing and arguing. So I think <laughs> that was what, something that I was tossing up between law and medicine early on. I think even before that, I thought about being a journalist. And I, I do like blogging and writing, but not sure journalism has much of a future for much longer. And then, yeah, but probably right now, if I was to go back and look at what I was passionate about when I was young and what's exciting at the moment, probably would have liked to just pursued a career in computer science, but possibly with a kind of like a business degree sort of or mixture. And um, so, you know, I was went to medical school and then university in the early 90s. So I guess I could imagine myself having been involved in a few tech startups and things like that, maybe looking at the new wave of technology or something like that. Maybe it was successful and got into Atlassian in the early days or something like that and now I've got money to reinvest in startups or something like that. Being some sort of tech investor would be cool, I guess, because I do like technology and I like playing around websites and software as a service and automation. going to rule that out entirely based on the <laughs> amount of careers you've accumulated so far. <laughs> Yeah, potentially. I mean, I'm a a small investor in MedApp, which some of your listeners would be um, familiar with. I met Rob Perlman, who's the co-CEO of MedApp when I was at Hedy, and um, I think on some sort of scholarship from us for something or other, or he got a grant. And then he went off and developed this, you know, JMO orientation app that's now being used in three different continents, I think, and used not just by doctors, but nurses, etc. If you haven't got it at your hospital, ask for it. (laughs) (laughs) Conflict of interest declared. (laughs) At least you, yeah, declared it. That's all we can ask. That brings us to an end. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been really cool to hear about everything you've done. I'm sure there's many things we haven't covered. 
So maybe I'll have to get you back for another one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say that um, if any of your listeners are particularly interested in getting into coaching, more than happy for them to hit me up and we can have a chat about how you can do that. I think it's a really good, if people are looking for a side gig, it's something that you might want to consider as something you do for a bit of small time on your side and yeah, I'm happy to explain how I got into doing that. I fell into that really as well. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for your time. Amazing. Thank you. How can people get in touch with you? Best way to do it would be to uh, get onto the web and just find the Advanced Med website. That's advancemed, A-D-V-A-N-C-E-M-E-D.com.au. There's a chat bot there. There's a contact form. Um, I also run a YouTube channel, which is the Career Doctor, where you can ask questions there. And I'm pretty much omnipresent, omnichanneled, so I'm sure they'll find me. I'm sure my links will be in the description somewhere to this podcast yes. as well. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Elise. Have a good time. Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes of this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence, and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging. 